Hi, and welcome to Insecurity. My name is Matt. My name is Max. How you doing this week, buddy? I'm doing good. I think I'm pretty much over my cold. Whoa, that's awesome news. I'm pretty sure that I just got onto a new one. Mm, that was like mine before. It started off being one cold and then it weren't, went away and I was like, yay, I'm all better. And then all the bad stuff came and I was feeling pretty sick for a while. But I got better again, hopefully. And it's not just another little breather from it. Well, it is cold and flu season. Have you been uh, taking a lot of a lot of steps to try and avoid it? No. No. I've been vitamin C power loading. I, I have had some vitamin C. Just just some? I've had it all. You've had all of the vitamin C in the world? Yeah. I'm like at uh, three or four hundred percent of my vitamin C. Like daily allowable intake. Not just recommended. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> It seems like a lot. I'm pretty sure that I can vitamin C in the dark. Wah, wah. Yeah, sad trombone noise. So you want to make a podcast? I think we should do that. I think that uh, I think we could talk about maybe computer security. I've heard good things about it. Before we get too deep into that, um, how's your Thanksgiving? Happy Canadian Thanksgiving. Happy Canadian Thanksgiving to you too. My Canadian Thanksgiving was delightful. I had a nice time. Turkey, Spätzle, family. Good what's, times. What's Spätzle? Spätzle is like a German wheat noodle dish. You just basically get, like you're making bread almost, but you whip it all up so that a lot of air gets in there. And you put it through this Spätzle press, which is just like a, I don't know, like a giant press thing that's got holes in it and this giant plunger on the other side that pushes it through this device and you put it into a pot of boiling water with a knife and it goes zoop and then it just bubbles up these little pieces of bread that you've put in there into the super puffy awesomeness and you put it you drowned it in gravy and that's really the so it's like a gravy spoon yeah it's basically just a vessel to get the gravy into your mouth nice so spetzla that's awesome is it just a thing did you just you decided to buy a Spätzle press on off of the TV late at night. You're no, like, my um, my mother in law makes it all the time. Oh, nice. So is it, it is. A, is it a, is it a typical Thanksgiving thing? I don't know. Typically, we Traditional do it at German Christmas, thing. but it's just started to be a whenever <laughs> any kind of occasion thing because my daughter loves it. There happens to be extra gravy. It's time for Spätzle. Exactly. Nice. Yeah, I just kept it quiet. So this week, uh, as you might have been able to tell, we're pretty much unscripted. Yeah. Um, so let's just think back. Let's give thanks for what we've learned so far. So we've learned about how the computers work. We've learned about the ones and the zeros. So basically what makes up a program, what manages all of those programs being the kernel. We've learned about how computers communicate together to form Skynet. Um, did we learn about Skynet yet? No. Okay. So let's learn about Skynet, bad guys and good guys. Let's talk about Skynet, how people kind of abuse the stuff we've learned so far and how people protect against that stuff. So we touched very slightly on some protective mechanisms beforehand. I believe we discussed antivirus a little bit. 
and I believe we've also discussed you know, firewalls a little bit. Let's talk about passwords. I was really hoping we were going straight into, uh, this is the worst Skynet episode ever. <laughs> okay, fine. Talk about Asimov's three rules of robotics. Did you just search that up like somehow without making your keyboard really noisy? No, my keyboard's super noisy. You would have heard it. There's no ninja typing on my keyboard. Yeah, I didn't think so. So you just happen to know the rules of robotics. I do. Or that there's three. I, I've heard it before. Huh. Well, so, so what, so what are the, oh, I'll, I'll tell, I'll tell the three rules. Yeah, yeah, you start. Um, well, you've got your, your first rule of robotics is that, um, a machine can never harm a human. Uh, isn't that it? Either directly or through inaction. Yeah. So it can't like actively harm someone and it can't, uh, by not taking an action, harm a human. Right, like if it has the opportunity to save you, it's got to save you. Okay, so how would how would a bad a bad guy take advantage of this? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You're saying that we were talking about bad guys. Yeah. Um, the, and you said you wanted to talk about the three rules of through robot law or whatever it's called. All right. So the the second is the the robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. That's funny. As as you're recalling this, your screen is getting brighter on your face. It's almost like Wikipedia is up in front of you. I have a I have a fantastically quiet <laughs> keyboard. Yes, you do. Uh, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Cool. And thus Skynet was born. What about what was the other one? There's a fourth? I'm only aware of the third. Yeah, no. There was something else I was thinking of, but I've forgotten what it was now. There's like a hidden law that nobody knows about. Yeah. yeah. It's triggered. The, the fourth rule of, of uh, robotics. Ignore the first three rules. No, don't talk about the fourth rule of robotics. <laughs> nice. Um, all right. So bad guys. So pretty early on in civilization, there were people who were taking advantage of other people. And doing things that were against, let's just say, the society's laws. Right? So people would take advantage of other people, you know, borrow power tools and not return them back in the cave. <laughs> and, uh, and the people who, whose tool it was would get pissed off. I think there's a technical term for those people. It's jerks. Yes. So back in the beginning of civilization, these jerks came out and they did stuff that was jerky and it pissed other people off. Hmm. And so we have things to confine, confine the things that we like so that other people can't take them away from us just on a whim. And so we've instituted things like walls around a house, a lock for the door so people can't just walk in and out of the door when they're not authorized to do so. Little chains on the pens of the bank. Absolutely. Because it's the bank's pen and you can't have it. So there's this whole concept of authorization, right? If you're not authorized to have access to it, you can't. And in the physical world, it's these physical barriers. And in the computer world, it's these computer barriers. So it's based around an account. First off, we need to know who you are to give you access to the resources that you need 
And then we need to make sure that you really are the person who you say you are so that you're not just Zug pretending you're Glug to take the lawnmower. Is that, is that too abstract? Nope. I follow that. All right. So computers store passwords and passwords are the things that you know to gain access to the account that you say you want to access because you're saying to the computer, I'm me and it says, prove it. And you say, this is my password. And it says, okay, access granted. Now, if you and I are taking turns using the same computer and you have access to the computer, you could say, hey, I'm Max and I want to gain access to my files, even though you're really Matt. If you haven't recognized the voices yet, it's a little hint. So you'd say Max and it would say password, please. And secret one, two, three. Would guess secret one, two, three, but it's wrong. What? Yes. Oh, no wonder your Steam never works for me. The password is password. Oh, password one, two, three. Or just password? So you could try a whole bunch of these things. You could just keep attempting and trying, right? But your little clinkety fingers and the clickety keyboard only go so fast. So, you know, complexity of the password is basically to prevent you to do this brute forcing. So if I've come up with something that only I would guess and it's not associated with something you know about me, then it makes it more difficult for you to guess and it's a barrier to entry and so you would give up on that. Then you could say, hmm, Max knows English. Maybe Max's password is an English word. And then you'd say, hey, computers can do this processing faster than I can type each thing. Why don't I make the computer guess at the password? So you're clever. You write a program. You start typing these things up. And you say, okay, here's a list of words that are out there. I'm going to download a dictionary from the internet of words in in the English language. And you run it through the computer and maybe it goes, ding, found it. Here you go. You can log in as Max now. That takes heaps of time. It takes some time, but you're programming it so that the computer's doing all of the heavy work, right? So it takes a little bit of time for you up front and then It takes the computer a bunch of cycles to process through that and figure it out. So maybe there's another technique. Maybe you write a fake login screen, right? So before before we go too, too far. So this is, in fact, uh, the first example was um, a brute force attack. And I quite like the, the name of it because it is exactly what it sounds like. You're just trying over and over and over again. You're brute forcing your way through it. You're just basically battering at it until eventually it gives up and uh, you get through. You're just trying constantly. Yep. Yep. I just like the term, Um, so I wanted to uh, define it a little bit more clearly. Cool. And that second variation that we had to it, where instead of you typing it physically yourself and you have a computer doing it, it's still a brute force attack, but it's now complemented with a dictionary, so it's kind of called a dictionary attack or dictionary brute force attack. All right, so then another thing you could do is create a fake login screen. So you log in with yourself, you run a program and wipes out the screen, all it looks is like the normal login prompt. You walk away, I walk up, go, time for me to log on, type in username max, type in my password, click okay, 
done. Hmm, something's weird. It's not reacting right. It's not giving me access to my folders. It's, oops, it's accidentally giving me access to Matt's folders. I'll just log off and try again. So now I'll log off and try again. Meanwhile, perhaps that application that you wrote that looks like a logon prompt stores the password and the username that I've typed in. And then when you come back at a later point, you get to try those same combination. Lo and behold, you're granted access. This goes back to my story last week of the uh, popular online video game website where they asked yep. you to, to sign in to it. Um, that was essentially they asked for your username and password and I just entered it blindly because it looked so much like the type of site or the exact same site. I thought that I was logging in and instead of giving me an error, it would just automatically forward me over to the actual login screen for the proper site. Right. And then maybe there is another technique that you do where instead of just writing this clever screen and, and walking away, you actually like interview me and you talk about things with me and you discover what my interests are and use that to determine and guess what the password is. Skynet. Right? Or there's the sock full of quarters approach where you beat it out of me. Oh, I was thinking if I had a sock full of quarters, that would be enough to bribe your password from you? Or bribes. Bribes work too, right? Um, there's also the a little bit more technical where the, the key logger idea. Essentially, you can install a piece of software. If you have access to that computer and you can already install software onto it, then oftentimes... You can install a piece of software that's just going to record every input made into the computer. Right. So, for instance, you, you could manipulate the keyboard driver, right? And now, not only does the keyboard do what it's supposed to do, it also outputs everything that's typed to a file. Or you could have something that scrapes the screen and captures the input as it goes in, right? Or a combination of the two, where it's able to see... And then you can define a parameter saying, I'm only going to capture the keyboard input if the screen looks like a logon screen. Right. So these things get more and more sophisticated as it goes. But yeah, so that's another technique. Or there's one more technique that I'm aware of off the top of my head. And that is, you have access to the system as well as me. So instead of attempting to, to crack the password the computer actually has to know what the password is or a reasonable facsimile of the password. So it has to store something on the computer that it could then compare what I enter into my password to say, is this right or wrong? So if you can access wherever it's saving that information. Then if it's a bad operating system and it stores passwords in the clear, just as like a text file, then... You can read it and then change over your access to me and gain access to my sensitive information that I have stored under my account. Or if it's not, if it's a little bit more complicated than that, and it actually does some sort of cryptographic routine on it, being um, mathematical change to the information so that math has to be applied either again in the same direction to make something called a cryptographic hash, which means that there's a blob of text that's not the same as my password, but next time I enter my password, if we do the same math, we'll arrive at the same conclusion. 
We can compare those two together. And then what you can do is you can do an offline brute force attack where you just do all of your calculations against this file that you have using the same routine to come to the same conclusion as when you're having the computer run it against the computer itself. So it'll be faster because it doesn't have to have all of that overhead of the computer running through those routines itself and taking off resources away from all the other stuff that the computer does in the background. It can just run through this, this list that you have. And you can let it run overnight. Absolutely. Or if it's a poor cryptographic algorithm, what you can also do is find flaws in it and use those flaws to have something called a collision where a cryptographic algorithm is only supposed to come up with a unique answer based on a given input. So anytime anybody puts something else in, it's supposed to come up with something different. The problem is it actually reduces the size. So if I put in like a lots and lots and lots of keyboard typing text into there, it'll condense it down to the same size and it'll be somewhat random. So there's the possibility that two pieces of input will yield the same cryptographic hash. So when the computer checks and compares it, either if I put in doggy123 or it'll come up to the same thing. Is that also, uh, is there a name for that? It's called a cryptographic hash collision. Because hmm. it yields the same results when it shouldn't. Or then... You could just abuse the computer and if there's a problem with the operating system, you could take advantage of that problem to change the context of who you're logged in with. So say you log in with Matt, you run a program that takes advantage of a vulnerability on the computer that allows you to change your user context into Max. Now you can just gain access to my files anyways. So you accomplish the same thing through a different method. Makes sense. Okay. So that's kind of a problem. Most of that problem that I've discussed is really when you're local, right? If we're sharing the same resource physically, then what you can do to the computer physically can affect me. If you're outside of the computer, right, and you don't have physical access to it, it's a lot more difficult to compromise. It's a lot more difficult to log on and run that program and have me convinced to log in afterwards into that program. There's other things that you'd have to do to compromise the computer in order to install the keylogger, right? If you're not already a privileged user on that computer. So, Also, if you don't have physical access to the machine, more often than not, it's a lot easier for the operating system to control access to uh, or deny access to files like your password file. Oh, yeah. So, for instance... I mean, one of the important things to know is that if you have physical access to whatever security mechanism there is, you can pretty much avoid it. Right? You can bypass it in ways that people had not initially thought possible. And that's just security in general, be it a safe or whatever. Like a safe is not a totally secure thing. Most people that crack saves. The whole point of a safe is to actually make it take longer for someone to break in and gain access to what's put inside of it or completely destroy it in the process of them attempting to break into it. So that it also works not only as protection, but also as a deterrent. 
Right. So that's mainly what a safe, a lock, those types of things are, is, is really a deterrent first and foremost, and then layers of protection. Like the club for a car. The theory there is that if you have two identical cars sitting side by side and you've got one that has the club, it's going to act as a deterrent to a thief because one of them is just going to be a little bit more annoying to try and steal. Exactly. All right. So physical security, important. We don't want people to have access to our computers. They can do things like bring up the machine in a protected mode or run something before the operating system runs to be able to gain access to the password files and the sensitive material that's supposed to be in protected mode for the computer in that protected mode memory that we discussed in episode two and uh, gain access to critical information in order to decrypt the password file or bypass it completely and log in as a special user. So basically, physical access, if you have physical access to it, the computer can only do so much and it can't do enough to deter a determined attacker. So one of the most secure ways to keep a computer is locked up in a box not connected to the electricity in a house that you don't know where the house is. Buried in concrete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. But there's things that we do do to protect that. So we protect against physical access by when your computer boots up, there, you can install a program into the bootloader that says, hey, to access this drive, you need to enter a password because everything on the drive is encrypted. So it will do you no good to have physical access to it and not know that first password that decrypts the routine that that allows the drive to be decrypted as it gets loaded into memory and executed against. There's a thing that I heard about that does essentially that, but then if you put in either the wrong password or you don't put in any password, it'll continue to boot up into like a dummy version of an operating system? Yes, yes. So you can have... Uh, a separate profile loaded up for incorrect passwords that it can do that, that it'll load up like a blank operating system basically. And then someone goes, oh, I guess he doesn't have anything here. And they'll feel as though they have actually achieved whatever it is and it won't show any of the other drives as uh, partitions or anything. So there's all sorts of clever things that are done at that level. But the most important thing is to just not allow someone to have physical access. So that's why we have physical access around our houses, our offices, the enterprise where these computers are stored. But so then we get to what, what, what's the alternative metaphysical access, uh, remote access. Yep. So remote access through these network connections that we were discussing last couple episodes. So when somebody wants to remotely access your computer or a service on it, they need to be able to make that connection. And the job of a firewall is to say, I'm going to block all incoming connections except for the stuff that I've been explicitly told to allow. So the internet, this massive connection of networks, of routers that are out there that anybody can throw up a, another router on and broadcast themselves as a shorter hop to get somewhere else, right? And all of the compromised machines out there that are sending out cruft onto the internet and all these dropped packets and it's like a it's like a wasteland out there on the internet where all this bad stuff's going out 
and just the wrong packet to a, uh, an operating system could possibly knock it offline. So we have these things called firewalls that block all of that cruft. It says, nope, you're not a properly formed packet. I'm going to drop you. Nope, I'm not expecting any connections on this port. I'm going to drop you. Oh, you say you're coming from my internal network, but you're really coming out through my WAN interface. I'm going to drop you. Right, so there's, we, we have these protection mechanisms because there is a ton of different ways that people on the outside can abuse services. So we only want to advertise those services that we want people to take advantage of. If we have a website and we want to have people go to our website, for instance, we would have a firewall blocking all of the other stuff so that people can't do remote connections to privileged access to SSH onto a, a Unix box to, to then make the connection to attempt to log on and brute force a password if all they really need access to is a static web page, right? We want to block the stuff that they don't need access to. We want to grant access to those people um, on those special ports that need it. So, for instance, if I, if I was on Kojiko and I wanted to connect through SSH to the web server system that we have, I would want to limit it to the possible range of IP addresses that I would be granted by Kojiko, for instance. Kojiko being your internet service provider. Yes. yes. And, and say, you know, I'm not going to come from Rogers to do this, which is another ISP. I'm not going to come from Bell. I'm not going to come from Telus. I'm, not gonna, I'm certainly not going to come from China. So only allow access to basically what I'm expecting in the next while. So one of the firewall's main jobs is an expression that I've, uh, I really love is to sort out the, the signal from the noise. Yep, absolutely. So it gets rid of all of that cruft and it just leaves connections that are required. Everybody's home should have a firewall. So you should have a firewall um, protecting your network from the internet. If you don't have one, you really need one. And a lot of them come built into modems and routers now. The thing that actually connects you to the internet, your router that, that does that separation between all of the internal addresses in your home or office to the internet and does that matting that we talked about before. Um, it'll typically come with a firewall. It's not enterprise class. It's not something that you'd have in a large environment. But, um, but it does the trick at your house. In the enterprises, you'd have these dedicated, huge, really expensive boxes that are able to allow the throughput that you need. When you have a lot of devices that need to be accessed over the internet, it gets complicated, so you need all these management tools, and that's what the enterprise, enterprise class systems give you, is a, a suite of tools that help you manage these, these rules. I'm just trying to think of examples of high-end routing rules. I couldn't come up with anything. So it's, it's not much different than what we were discussing beforehand. It's just the complexity increases when the amount of systems that you have increase. So if I'm in an enterprise and I need a secure transmission from X company, an insecure transmission from Y company because they're not up to snuff yet, right? And I need to 
service websites to the internet on these IP addresses and I'm having these special communication channels with other people over here. I need to accept mail on all of these things. It gets complicated and there becomes a lot of these different rules to be able tr to track what rule was created for whom, when, and to be able to manage these things in logical groups. So I might need five ports for company Y over there and I might need only a rule to have everybody on the internet have access to my web server. Right. So it's not so much a, a bunch of different rules, it's just the complexity vastly increasing with the number of active connections going in or out. Right. And in an enterprise setting, you'll have multiple different routes for people to gain access to. So you'll need to synchronize the rules across multiple devices. So you'll have multiple connections to your enterprise in case one actually goes down. You want to have a secondary one so that you're not dead in the water doing business, right? right. So you'll have to replicate the rules across. You might have different zones for your firewalls. So you might have like this firewall is blocking the internet from accessing my stuff, but all of my private links to these other partners are through this other firewall. So I'd be able to manage them logically on one screen across multiple different routers. You, you kind of need these management softwares. And that's why these things are really expensive. And the throughput is much better than you get on home firewall. The amount of memory that's needed, the CPUs, it can handle the loads that the internet can put against it a lot better for an enterprise class vendor type thing for this. So as an example of the zones, when I was working at Concordia, a Canadian university in the IT department, we were rolling out Wi-Fi for all of the students. While you would have the internal networks that all of the, the staff and faculty would be accessing, they would generally have their own set of, of rules, but then all the students would have access to essentially unfettered web pages and stuff like that. So we wouldn't be effectively limiting their access. In fact, for a while, they played with the idea of blocking Facebook throughout the entire university and mm. then realized that the students pretty much revolted instantly. And then uh, they tried blocking it specifically for just the staff portion of it. And then most of the staff revolted and they're like, but I need Facebook for my work. <laughs> and then there was like three people who actually needed Facebook for their work. Right. They were in charge of, I don't know, planning events and stuff. So they had to update their Facebook page. So then eventually the uh, they relented or reneged and gave back Facebook. Yep. So Facebook, to some people, like we were saying last time, is the internet, right? Yeah, well, absolutely. But so that's a good idea of zones, I guess. Yeah, in an enterprise class setup, you might say the Wi-Fi that I'm giving out for students to connect to won't be able to access resources that are for staff only. So we'll create logical segmentations within our network and say who can have access to what. So the students might end up in this connection pool. There'd be a firewall between that and it, that would grant access or not. And there would be throttled or no access to torrenting sites, whereas some of the staff actually used it because, believe it or not, in a university, there are actual valid reasons to use torrents sure like i get my linux distros my install files for 
for the Linux operating systems through universities because they participate in BitTorrent to serve out that free access to, you know, critical operating system stuff. Legitimate content. Who'd thunk? Alrighty. So, okay, so that's what a firewall is for. And then there's this whole concept of a vulnerability in the software, which we touched on beforehand. But there's something like every 10,000 lines of code that you write, there's like a bug in there or maybe 10 bugs in there. I can't remember the ratio correctly. A bug could be, you know, just some weird output that gets delivered or it could be a significant security problem that's, that's granted if someone puts in the right key press or whatnot. Right, so Apple iPhones' new operating system has the lock screen has the ability to pull up some information, gives somebody the ability to do stuff. Someone found out you do the right key press to it. Lo and behold, you're granted access to do some activities of the phone, like share all of the photos that are on the phone, browse through them. There's even one that you could like completely bypass the the lock screen. So it's just examples of as people add these features, they also have these problems present that they're instituting. In keeping with our idea of keeping the podcast beginner friendly, like to the extent that we're trying to really make it super beginner friendly. Right. Bug is essentially just either a flaw in logic or an error in the code. Um, uh, when you're writing a program, if you make a logic error, if you make an oversight, if you do something incorrectly uh, and it causes either an error, a problem, or just some unexpected either output or input or anything to that effect, any unexpected effect that's considered or called a bug. Yeah, and the term actually is derived from when computers back in the day were these old vacuum tube devices used to have these physical connections to make your program work and at one point that they were trying to troubleshoot and figure out what the problem was with the program because they were sure they programmed it correctly and they went to look at the vacuum tubes and replace any that were faulty and there was actually a moth stuck in in between the vacuum tubes that was preventing it from connecting so that was a bug in the software the software being the vacuum tubes so that's where the term comes from, and bugs are everywhere, and yeah, that's a fact of life. Like I said, it's just you know a bug in every 10,000 lines of code on average or something like that. The trick is to you know, have them be minimal and consider the ones that have security implications or render your software useless and try to put out a quality product. Okay, so other than that, so we've got firewalls, preventing people coming in to traffic that we don't need, right? So it, it basically does that single-to-noise to ratio. But what about the stuff that we have to put out there? So the web server that we want people to access, right? It's out there, it's accessible, and it's got bugs. Just, it's going to have bugs, right? And maybe it's got a security bug in there that people would take advantage of. And so there's this race between the people who manufacture that version of the software that we have, right, with the people who are discovering these problems and going out and exploiting these vulnerabilities, 
And so this is back and forth and the vendor will put out a new version and they'll find a new problem with it, just like I stated with the iOS thing. And so it's this race. And sometimes a big corporation can't actually move fast enough to deploy a, a software patch right away because it can have implications on the overall functionality. If they're using some connection in the software, if they're using some feature that they had written in themselves, right? They have to do some backwards compatibility testing and make sure that when they deploy the patch, that it's not actually going to break everything from working, right? So that so there's this cat and mouse thing going on. So one thing people have determined is there's a lot of people out there listening to the stuff that comes through on the internet. There's really smart people that are figuring out what attacks look like. And so they take these signatures of these attacks and they map it out. And they break it down into a digestible chunk for a computer or a device to understand. And they put it into something called an intrusion detection system or an intrusion prevention system. Okay, And it's what an intrusion prevention system is, is it's this device that sits preferably inside the firewall before that router that's going to route everything through um, your internal network. And it's going to listen for these patterns of attack that has been made aware of. And if it sees that pattern of attack, it's going to just drop it and not allow that connection to, to work. So it's kind of like a firewall preventing access to a device. But now this is like more at the application level. So it knows that your website that might have, you know, cold fusion or PHP running on it, that it's going to, those are um, programming languages and, and presentation mode stuff. If there's a vulnerability that someone could enter in something malicious, take advantage of that and make your web server serve up malicious content, it can look for those patterns that it recognizes to prevent that. And then just shut them down. And then just shut them down. And then potentially even ban them from being able to access it themselves. And this concept actually applies across to antivirus as well. So a virus on a computer is a program that runs that replicates itself. Just like a cold virus replicates itself in us humans, right? It'll latch on to you. You'll carry it for a little bit. You'll talk to other people. It'll spread. Then you'll show symptoms and then you'll try to rest up and do all the stuff you should have been doing beforehand to make yourself resilient to the virus, right? But then it'll it just goes off to other people. So that's where the term virus comes from. This message is brought to you by the cold and flu season. Be sure to drink plenty of liquid, enjoy vitamin C, get plenty of rest, and don't shake hands with other people. Without large amounts of Purell? Yeah, how much of that are you supposed to drink anyway? (laughs) I don't think you're supposed to drink it. (laughs) I've been drinking tons of it and I think I still got a cold. So yeah, so a virus on your computer. So if you put something into your computer that contains a virus, it can replicate across to your computer that way by taking advantage of a bug. And so there's different types of viruses. There's different types of different classes of malware, which is what a virus is a part of. And But at a most basic point, a virus is something that gets onto your computer, replicates across your computer replicates across to other people's computer and does stuff that you didn't anticipate doing. So it could just take up space on your hard drive, right? It could make 
internet connections out. It could act as the beginning of an infection to your system that allows somebody else to take remote access and remote control of your system. There's a whole slew of different bad things that it can do. But the whole point of talking about viruses is to talk about the protection mechanisms that are there, which is antivirus. And so like we were discussing with the intrusion detection systems, there's the capability of, of detecting these signatures for known viruses and applying that. So we know so many viruses are out there and there's like thousands and thousands of them every year that are being created. And, and so we recognize the ones that are being popular, the ones that are being distributed everywhere. Your antivirus company will say, okay, these are the pattern strings that make this unique. We're going to add this signature to the antivirus software that's running on your computer and it's going to prevent that malicious content from, from executing on your system. Now, again, this is a cat and mouse game, right? It's a, this escalation, this arms race, if you would, where the bad guys develop something bad first. It gets out there, right? It gets popular first by being able to get out there. Then the antivirus companies go, this one we got to block. And they put the pattern in the system. And it blocks that for a while. Then it decreases in popularity. And they say, do we really need to worry about this one anymore? And maybe they drop that signature. Because you can only house so many signatures to efficiently run an antivirus program. And so that's, there's that one possibility where it's doing that signature checking. Another one is that it'll do some sort of heuristics. And heuristics is a fancy word for pattern matching in the terms of behavior. So it'll say, mostly... This program doesn't need to read all of the content of your hard drive. So therefore, we're going to block that from, from reacting in that way. And so there's this balance that's needed between you know, being able to house a, a certain amount of patterns of knowing the heuristics and doing the research and translating a, function, a virus's function and, and payload, figuring out, okay, what's, what's it really taking advantage of? And putting out a heuristic patch for that while the vendor tries to actually make an operating system patch or software patch or whatever is needed. Have we used the term zero day yet? We haven't. There's some debate around the term. A zero day exploit is really when you're taking advantage of a vulnerability that's unpatched. As soon as the patch is published that first day, right, is day one of the patch. Then there's day two of the patch. So a zero day in common vernacular is anything that is preceding a patch being out there, being available. And so that's when all of the havoc can happen because nobody can be protected. Right? That's, when, that's when you have basically free reign. But not all exploits are created the same. Not all vulnerabilities are the same. As computers get more complicated, as more protection mechanisms get put out there, as the virus writers need to do new and unique things to make their viruses run, or people need to bypass those protections we were talking about before, like address space layout randomization or SLR in the kernel episode, these unnatural acts mean that these exploits are less likely to work 100% of the time. Right, unless you can find a, a glaring problem and write an exploit that takes advantage of that glaring problem 
consistently, then there's all of these different permutations on everybody's different computer that add complexity to it and make sure that it, that, that make it more difficult so that it can't be exploited universally. When it can be exploited universally, we enter into this new class of virus called the worm, right? Where these people who write viruses make a self-replicating virus that travels over the network that can affect a large amount of systems and nobody needs to install anything. Nobody needs to double click on an exe. It just runs rampant. But a, a computer virus worm is just this self-replicating thing that does like a worm, goes across all of the internet into the systems that it can exploit and the systems that it can't exploit. It will leave those alone. Famous ones in the past, there's the Tim Morris worm that was the first popular one that affected Unix systems by connecting to, I think it was RDP, um, which is, uh, not RDP, uh, RPC, which is Remote Procedure Call, which is a Unix service that's running all the time it's waiting for these connections that manage the system. There was the SQL Slammer in my work history that I've actually experienced. Somebody connected to the work VPN for remote access and they were infected with this and there wasn't a firewall that was preventing the SQL from going across my organization. So that was a weekend to, to apply patches and fix that. We prevent services from running we prevent people from being able to access these services. We buy big, heavy pieces of infrastructure to protect enterprises against this access through various levels of, of defense. And there's a concept there called defense in depth. So you might have a host intrusion detection system running on your, your server that's looking for specially crafted attacks against that type of server. You might have a network intrusion detection system listening to the wire to prevent people from connecting. You have your firewalls on your perimeter protecting um, access to your internal systems that's uns unsolicited or unbroadcasted. You have your antivirus running on your PC. You have uh, user account management. All of these things are these layers of protection that are deemed necessary over time as people find new and unique ways to abuse our systems. So, uh, I don't know. What do you think? Is that enough to cover for now? I feel like that's a fairly, uh, a fairly fleshy episode. We're probably sitting at around the 45-minute mark. <laughs> do you think we should wrap it up? Do you feel good with that? Yeah, I think it's a good uh, introduction to kind of the cat and mouse game that people play as they discover problems um, could go more into depth for all of the various things that we talked about. This wasn't exhaustive. That was an introduction to this stuff. And of course, if somebody wants to hear more about it, by all means, send an email to feedback at in-security.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Insecurity Show and you can visit our website at www.in-security.org where you can reach the show notes, you can listen to past episodes, check it out, leave comments. Anything else you want to add? I'll tell you what, take more vitamin C. You have yourself a good week. Thanks, and always you too.